Luke writes, Jesus went out ahead going up to Jerusalem when he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you and as you enter it you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The Gospel of the Lord. In the time of Jesus, Jerusalem had about 50,000 residents, we're told. But during the festival of the Passover every year, at least 200,000 people crowded into the city. And for all of the Jewish pilgrims that came, that must have been a remarkable experience. I remember what it was like to arrive in Santiago de Compostela or Rome after pilgrim journeys But I know that that can never compare to the experience of being in Jerusalem for the annual observance of Passover. The festival itself had its roots in a story of profound hope for all of the pilgrims who came to the holy city. Out of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt, God had delivered their ancestors from the tyranny of a self-proclaimed God. And God had brought them to a place of blessing and abundance. It was an unforgettable use of divine power. But I can't imagine that hope such as this wasn't mingled with disappointment and perhaps even despair for many who were in Jerusalem that day. Because after all, the city itself was now under the rule of another self-proclaimed God, severe rule. He was Tiberius Caesar, and his fast-growing Roman Empire had been successful in crushing all opposition. Under him, the Jews who came to Jerusalem that day or that week came with no basic rights at all in this new empire, no access to power, no path to inclusion, no stake at all in their own future. And for them, it was a familiar story. It was just one more wave of oppression after the iron-fisted rule of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, and now the Roman Empire. And in case any of them started to get too hopeful during the Passover, the Roman occupiers always staged a military parade 
right in the middle of it. In a show of force, the governor of Judea would ride up to Jerusalem from his coastal residence in the west. He would come in all of his imperial majesty to remind the Jewish pilgrims that Rome demanded their complete loyalty, obedience, and submission. They could commemorate their ancient victory against Egypt and slavery if they wanted to. But this was a way of saying that if anyone tries real resistance now, it will be crushed. If some pilgrims lost all hope when they saw the emperor coming, the governor coming, I wouldn't blame them. What I imagine, though, is that the hope that most of them had was commingled with despair or at least disappointment. The freedom that they continued to pray for, hope for every year from generation to generation had not yet come to pass. But they trusted that God was still their God and that God was eternally faithful. That's what the Passover was all about. In the gospel reading that we heard at the beginning of worship, we learned that there was a good number of people in Jerusalem that day who found renewed hope in the deeds of power that had been done by a man named Jesus from Nazareth. In his mission of mercy and compassion, demons had been cast out. Sick people had been cured. A dead man had even been brought back to life. It must have felt like hope was finally getting the upper hand. But when he entered the city to join them, Jesus didn't look very powerful at all. As the Roman governor crashed his way into Jerusalem from the west, Jesus approached from the east, looking by contrast ragtag and for some perhaps absurd. Unlike the Roman emperor and his legions who ruled by force, coercion, and tyranny, Jesus came defenseless, weaponless into their city. As one commentator said, he all but cried out the bottom line truth that his rule would have nothing to recommend it but love, humility, long-suffering, and sacrifice. For the multitude of disciples that welcomed him, there was a lot of joy and exuberance. But then as we will see in the stories that follow during Holy Week, that experience of hope must have gotten mingled with a sense of disappointment for so many of them. Otherwise, at least some would have stayed close to Jesus as he stood up to the powers that oppressed them. It's easy to judge the people for this, but in truth, I think their experience mirrors our own in so many respects. In reference to Palm Sunday, Frederick Buechner writes, despair and hope travel the road to Jerusalem together. As together, they travel every road we take. In a very honest moment of self-disclosure, one modern pilgrim said, This year I come to Holy Week tired, 
scared and hungry. Tired of God's hiddenness or absence. And tired of my own lonely, unsteady heart. Scared of all the stories, all the stones, sealing all the graves that I don't believe a miracle will roll away. Hungry for a would-be gardener God to find me at the tomb and call my name. Hungry for a million small and large and ordinary and extraordinary resurrections. This is me, she says, cloak and palm branches at the ready, waiting for a, with a mile-long list of expectations for a mighty king to come down from the mountains and rock my world. But then she goes on to say from her own perspective, if the story of Palm Sunday is about anything, it is a story about disappointed expectations. A story of what happens when the God we want and think we know doesn't show up. And another God, a less efficient, less aggressive, far less muscular God shows up instead. When that happens, she says, when our cries of save us now are met with heartbreaking silence, our hosannas go dark and our palm branches wither. We walk away, we close our hearts, and we deny the image of God in ourselves and in each other. It helps to remember that Palm Sunday does not stand all by itself in the much bigger narrative of Holy Week. If in our midst today, because of any circumstances in people's lives, hearts are breaking, it is the beginning of a holy time when our hearts will be broken wide open by the love of God in Jesus Christ. In her book called Broken Open, Elizabeth Lesser reminds us that a broken heart is not the same as sadness. Sadness occurs when the heart is stone, cold, and lifeless. On the contrary, she says, there is an unbelievable amount of vitality in a broken heart. When I read that, I thought about the vitality in Jesus' broken heart in the days before his death. If we say that betrayal and abandonment by your own closest friends in life would not bring deep disappointment, we imply that Jesus was cold-hearted. And if we suggest that he didn't really mean it when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? then we suggest that Jesus wasn't really human like us, that he didn't have a heart at all. In truth, it seems clear that hope and despair were commingled in everything that Jesus experienced that last week, even in his last words from the cross. Yes, his heart was breaking, but it was never lifeless. It was never closed to the promise of God's presence with him and within him and to the hope of life beyond death. In our own community right now at St. Mark's, the, the hope of this day is mingled with deep disappointment 
as we mourn the loss of a remarkable young woman from our congregation. In our prayers, we ask God to come with the power to destroy cancer and heal all disease. Instead, God came on nothing but a colt. Instead, a less efficient, less aggressive God showed up with nothing to offer but love, humility, companionship in suffering, and the hope of life beyond death. That may be something that you know very well from your own experience of how God has come to you. It's been hard, of course, but as our hearts are broken open, we are learning to still say, as so many of you perhaps have, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the love that flows like a river from him. Blessed are the gifts, the sacred gifts of companionship and mutual support. Blessed is the promise that God is still our God and that God is eternally faithful. One week from today, we will remember the life force that just pulses through all of this. If we fail to name it, Jesus says, even the stones will cry out. On this spring day, even the buds that burst forth will say what we hold deep within us, that nothing in all of creation can stop God from coming to us and abiding with us in hope, in despair, in life, in death, and in the eternal goodness that outlasts every empire, every source of pain and suffering, every injustice, and every voice that tells us that we have reached the end and that there is nothing more to come. We proclaim a different truth this day. So come, join the procession. There is so much more to come. And God in Jesus Christ is leading the way. Thanks be to God. Amen.